Hello, everyone. This is your host, Cheyenne Afshar, and you're listening to BAM, where we give you the current news about the world and America. BAM, right now. So, let's see. How's everybody doing? It's kind of late. Yeah, it's a bit late, but doing pretty okay. A little tired. Lots of things going on. Might be making some brownies later. I don't know. It depends, but pretty okay that sounds good i kind of feel really energized right now and i don't know why but i need to go to sleep earlier because it's just messing with me and going to sleep at one is just not working man you know? no i like it we're gonna put all that energy all that good energy into a good podcast at 9 26 p.m yes <laughs> too late it could go Never later. too late. <laughs> All right. Well, it could go later. <laughs> it could. Um, so let's see. I mean, context. Look, if you haven't listened to the other podcasts, go listen to it. You know, we got a lot of good stuff going on. I think the next two podcasts here, or next two episodes, they're going to be top notch, best of the best. So in, in this episode, we're we're doing the same thing technically but we're we're changing up how we do it so we're, we're this episode is basically going to cover the same idea that we've been covering in, in previous episodes by just reading our passage explaining what it means to us and uh just having a somewhat informal discussion or not structured discussion uh, just to make it more natural and probably more interesting too. And the idea is, or not idea, but ideally we become uncomfortable with our discussions. Not overly uncomfortable, but just enough where we can have some little bit of tension, um, maybe not between ourselves, but just in the conversation. You know, we, we, want, we want this to be real. So that is our goal. Who would like to introduce themselves first? All right. As you all know, I am Lucy Markin. My book is Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man by Emmanuel Ocho. And it's super good. And I'm almost done reading it. All right, y'all. Um, my name is Zion Mayo. I'm reading Poweronomics, the national plan to empower Black America. It was written by Dr. Claude Anderson. So getting through that book, a lot of good content. I suggest reading it and we're still going through it. And as you guys also all know, my name is Amia Bonilla. Um, I guess like she, her, and my book is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And lastly, uh, yeah, me, your host, Cheyenne Afshar, and uh, I'm reading Mediocre by, I believe it's pronounced Idioma Luo. I think it's French, I think, but I'm probably wrong. So, um, let's see. I think it's time to speak our truth here. Uh, Lucy, care to start us off? Gladly, Cheyenne. Okay. Um, I found a passage from my book. Um, 
And basically it's just, it's like depicting the argument of like black on black crimes. And so this argument is usually, it's like the retaliation that like ALM or all lives matter. Um, people will like say against BLM protesters when they're protesting police brutality against people of color or black people specifically. Um, so this is the passage. These days, the All Lives Matter crowd often trots out the statistic that the majority of Black people are killed by Black people and ask why Black folks care about white on Black crime, specifically death by police officers, more than Black on Black crime. That's not the case. Black people care more about being murdered. In addition to its murky genesis, Black on Black crime is a misleading term without context. The most important bit of context that the majority of violent crimes against white people are per perpetrated by white people. As sad as it may seem, people generally commit crimes against people of the same race. You want to know the truth? Poverty, not race, is more is a more accurate predictor of who commits crimes. According to the Bureau for Justice Statistics, people living in households with in income below the federal poverty line are twice as likely to commit crime than the high income households, regardless of race. End quote. So that passage really stuck out to me just because I really hadn't considered that argument. And I actually had to call one of my friends because I was just kind of confused of what black on black crime even meant. Like I just didn't understand what um, Emmanuel Acho was talking about. But essentially, when BLM protesters um, are protesting police brutality um, and the killing of innocent Black men and children or whoever, whatever, um, All Lives Matter crowd, their argument and response is Black on Black crimes is the major, that's like the majority of crimes as opposed to White on Black crimes. And I guess that argument is, un is invalid because people are more likely to commit crimes against their own race. So I think it was like 83% of white people um, are killed by other white people. And then 90 something, like 90% of black people are killed by other black people. So if you're going to talk about black on black crimes. You also have to talk about white on white crimes. But the whole idea is that Black on black crimes is just completely ir irrelevant. And that's not what BLM is protesting. So just kind of a irrelevant and misleading retaliation, I guess. Yeah, I definitely I hear that. And I hear what you're saying about the this specific topic, this specific point is brought up, you know, during the conversation of, you know, police brutality. It's like, well, okay, like black people are killing themselves. So why should we care about police killing them? And it, first off, it's like, it seems insensitive. It's like, okay, people are getting killed. Why should we care? That's what it comes off as. But then also it's interesting that that's the time when they want to bring up black on black crime. And when we're fighting for justice on the front of you know police brutality, they want to distract from that. And not only are they not, and I'm saying they as the group, you know, supporting 
the claim that or the claims against Black Lives Matter in the sense where it's not, you know, trying to achieve justice for Black people and it's not trying to, you know, lower the rate of Black-on-Black crime. It's just simply uses a way to distract from the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that's, it's not surprising, honestly. Yeah, but (laughs) it's like, it's like now this is the time that you're going to start to care about black. Exactly. (laughs) Like that's not a coincidence. They're just trying to once again, like not give BLM any kind of voice at all. And just exactly what you said, just distract. Oh yeah. I think. And then also like in terms of the rates, I know we, you spoke about like the crime rates and stuff. And I think one thing, or what I heard you say was, you know, poverty being a better indicator of, you know, crime, who's committing the crimes. And I think I remember, I heard it somewhere, I'm not sure where, but it was basically saying, you know, crime comes from uh, necessity, opportunity, and proximity. And so that's kind of just like, you know, people who need things or, you know, think they need things, they're going to try to get that. And then from that, if there's an opportunity to obtain those things illegally or illegally, in this case, we're talking about illegally, they're going to try to capitalize on that opportunity. And most of those opportunities are going to, they're trying to, you know, have it close to them. And that's where that comes into the proximity uh, or where proximity comes into the equation. And as we know, due to, you know, redlining in the history of our country and the persistent segregation that we see today, um, you know, proximity, when we're talking about proximity, white people are in closer proximity to other white people and black people are closer to other black people. And so that's, I think, you know, one of those reasons the crime rates for black on black crime are high and white on white crime are high because they're not going to go travel 30 miles to commit a crime when it could be committed in their own neighborhood. Yeah. And if you've got black people living near other black people and like because of redlining, maybe in more like areas that are that have more poverty, then Mm. you're going to have more crime rates because of the poverty. But it's not because of it's, it's, but it's not a race issue, it's a poverty issue. But then black people are getting that stigma, but it doesn't have anything to do with them being black. It's just, poverty and versus rich, I guess. I completely agree. Um, But just going back to what Zion was saying just a little bit earlier about how usually like people who I guess like are impoverished or in poverty, they just kind of like do what they have to do in order to provide for their family. And I feel like, I guess you can say like the government or just like the people who complain about like, oh, black people do this and this and this and like black on black crimes. But then at the same time, they don't try and help the community, which is majority of black people who are like in poverty or they don't try and like change what they obviously can see is like going or like making these black people like go through these experiences where they can't provide for their family or like 
they have to sell drugs in order to take care of their family or they have to do this and this and this. Like you said, they're not going to drive however long to go commit a crime when they can do it at home or like or they can do it around their neighborhood. So it's like you kind of can't complain or blame it on just black people and then try like not to try or like not try to fix it. Because I guarantee that there are also white people who live in trailers who also commit crimes and do the same thing black people do. And yet they don't try and point that out or like they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. Da, 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 da. Here's 20 bucks. But like you're going to think a black person is like a crackhead or like, oh, they didn't finish school. They just did drugs. They don't deserve right. money. They're just going to spend it on drugs. Definitely. That like entire stigma attached to being black and then being black and poor it's it's an entire different story and then you know when it's funny how we just like to all of a sudden ignore the history it's like okay you're poor because you're lazy not because you were you know your ancestors were subject to slavery and then uh reformed slavery and then another reformed slavery not because of that it's just because you're lazy like that's what it, it it seems like that's what it kind of turned into today yep the new jim crow amia's book that's what it's kind of going through right now yeah actually to be honest my book does really talk a lot about mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness and basically how african americans are experiencing or being incarcerated and white people are doing the same thing and yet not facing the crimes that black people do or they right. that they do or that are worse than what black people do or whatever that's that's right. like we were talking about last time with the with like the right about like the war on drugs exactly yeah. and that was let's see it was like 500 grams of powder cocaine uh would land you like 5 months in jail or something but if you were caught with like five grams of crack, it was five years. I think that was yep. it. Yep. In the stamp book. Difference. Yeah. It's the right? same. It's the a white same. owner and a black owner. Yeah. Or exactly. richer areas. So, but it was exactly. totally directed to just get more black people in prison, literally. Yeah. It was, I remember seeing in the 13th movie and then also reading the stamp book that we read earlier this year. It was just like, the you know they're the same when you look at the molecular structure of the drug is literally the same however the form of the drug that they use specifically in the more impoverished communities was crack cocaine and then the powder cocaine was seen as more sophisticated you know that was the wealthy drug that was the fancy drug and within that first of all are those you know, sophisticated, fancy people getting policed day and night. And then second of all, the people who are getting policed day and night, when they are found supposedly with the drugs, those convictions and the repercussions are extremely unbalanced for that to be the same drug. And so I think once again, we see, you know, the old systems playing out in a new way. <laughs> All like little like loopholes. Yeah, exactly. I think it's 
it's hmm, it's disheartening, but it's kind of expected. But I think there may be a way out. Alrighty, so how might that be? I was gonna say, um, with these, you know, I, I suppose impoverished towns and um, cities. You, you kind of see a different structure. Now, I'm not talking like racial structure or like, you know, whatever else you were thinking. I was, I was like the literal structure of the city is different in every way. You know, you see more lower end restaurants, right? That just kind of uh, very unhealthy restaurants that if you just keep eating it, you'll <laughs> eventually die from it. Uh, yeah. I don't know why I laugh, but it's just, it's horrible, right? I mean, it, you, you have things like that. And then I don't know if that still continues today, but gun stores, a lot more gun stores um, in the impoverished towns. And I think it's almost like an incentive to continue the violence, it seems like. Hmm. And, and, you know, yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to see it kind of, it plays into the whole systematic racism it's it's truly a, a system not just in people's minds but structurally physically in the country right right exactly that's my point here but i think it was like uh i saw like a little diagram and it was just kind of like outlining you know, systemic racism, structural racism. And I think that's kind of like what you were mentioning, how not only is it, you know, just actions that we have, but the way, you know, cities are built, the way our government functions, the way these different systems just work, tend to, and have a pattern of working against Black people. And I think, you know, you spoke on like, specifically how towns are made up. I think, you know, obviously just where the money goes and that's kind of like what my book mentions specifically you know poweronomics kind of like including the economic aspect of it is you know when you see you know white towns there's kind of there's like it mentions there's little italy's there's you know chinatown japantown all these different you know groupings uh ethnic groupings where you know the group gets together they take ownership of these businesses and um, different properties and then you know invest in themselves invest in that community however when you think of black communities it's not in you know a similar way you think or i know i you know from experience it's you know different t- stores and businesses that are owned by people who not only don't live in the community, but, you know, who aren't black. And so it's kind of like when black people are spending the money, you know, say at those restaurants that you were talking about, Cheyenne, say just like fast food restaurants, it's like, where is that money going? It's not kind of, it's kind of leave it. It is leaving the community. It's going, you know, to either larger corporations who aren't really giving anything else, but that restaurant to the community, or it's just, you know, feeding the people in that community bad stuff. And so I think, you know, what my book mentions is 
that entire aspect of not only spending money at black businesses but investing in the community and like specifically black people investing in the black community so you know if you live in a community make sure making sure that you know there is a black bank there so where you can get business loans from and then making sure there are black businesses there to where you can give the money to um i just wanted to make a comment about what shine said earlier before we went before we got too much past it, but about how, um, I guess, like unhealthier businesses, I guess you can say, for example, McDonald's are mostly placed or a lot more placed in like, I guess, areas of like in poverty or like, I guess people who are more impoverished have them, I guess the, you're gonna have to cut that out, but businesses. (laughs) Wait, are you gonna, wait, I wasn't listening. No, we're keeping that. it it, it shows the the genuine conversation you know true you can keep it in if you want he knows keep it going um but i was gonna say basically you know mcdonald's for example or taco bell they're mostly in areas of like poverty because cheap food people who don't have that much money can spend fast food right but also i think i was thinking about it as he was saying it and you know, the movie of the white guy who's like only going to eat McDonald's for a month and going to see how it affects my health. Tragic. Right? Tragic. So, I don't know if he passed away or he just suffered a heart condition, but it's like you're going to make a movie out of a man who's going to eat McDonald's for a month, breakfast, lunch and dinner. But yet you're not going to focus anything on the black people who are forced to do it even though the white man did it by choice but the black people who are forced to do it every day or like because they don't have enough money to buy go to the grocery store and buy what is it two dollars for just one pound of celery that's gonna last for one night for what a family of five or when you can get a two dollar meal which is a sandwich drink and fries yeah, no, you're right. right. So I think it's just crazy how people make movies out of a white man doing things by choice and they don't want to mm. focus anything on black people who have to do it their whole lives and yet die or suffer heart conditions and then die early because that's just how they're like. Right. And then it's new a cycle because exactly. these companies make more money from the impoverished people and yet they build more locations in the more impoverished areas. And then it's just building, but then also like declining at the same time. And Amia, the reason why, right. at least to my knowledge, the reason why these people, mostly minorities, but yes, blacks as well, are forced to eat this food and forced to live in these communities is because they're literally being squelched of their wealth. On McDonald's. Big companies by just you know, the systematic racism present in this country, all of it. I mean, every, every factor you can think of is just sucking money out of these people and they, they, they're helpless. You know, they really, well, not all of them, but most right. of them are. They're targeted. To, yeah. And, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Know it's funny. They don't make that much money, but then they need food. So then they're like, all right, I'm going to put one 
this corner, that corner, and this corner, but I'm not going to put one. I'm going to put one where five or white people have to drive 15 minutes to go get some chicken nuggets at Lafayette. Right. Right. No. Yeah. I think it's, no, it's, it's really funny you guys. Cause so when I transferred over like into like the Orinda district, you know, like people were talking about like downtown, like, Oh, we're going downtown. I was like, what is downtown? And I'm like, first off, like, what is that? And then, but we had been driving past it like all the time. And it was funny. Like what I noticed, I'm like, there's literally like no fast food restaurants in Orinda. There was like, I was kind of confused. I'm like, what do you guys do? (laughs) But then it was funny because like, I realized I was like, these businesses here are like literally like family businesses or the people who own the businesses are from Orinda. And so it's like an interesting, it's a, it's a productive system there. Cause I mean, if you think the family lives there, they open a business in the community, the people in the community go to that restaurant, spend their money there. And then those people who own the business take the money they pay their taxes to what, you know, source of government, Orinda. So money staying in Orinda. The business owners go back, spend their money at a grocery store in Orinda. Once again, the money staying in Orinda. Second of all, the business owner, they might, you know, donate money to the school system, which gets a million dollars every year. So three ways we see the money is staying in Orinda. And that's the way they are able to dictate, you know, we don't want a McDonald's in our town because we are going to open our own businesses. And that's just something there. It was interesting seeing that, that distinction from, you know, where I came from originally, it was just like, there's no fast food restaurants. And not only that, but it's on purpose. They didn't have it there for a reason. And it's like seeing that distinction and seeing the results of it around a very wealthy community and it's seemingly only getting wealthier. So <laughs> well, that's, that's so that's just, I've never really like thought about that, I guess. But I remember my grandma was talking about, she was in Sacramento and she was talking about how her town is getting a lot better and they're like making it like much better. Like the downtown area, kind of like our downtown Orinda, whatever. And they got like all these new, like super vegan and like right restaurants, like true foods and all this stuff. Whole foods. Yeah. It's just kind of funny. (laughs) I've never actually thought about that until you mentioned that just now. Yeah. And I think it's because, I mean, when you think of it, it's like, that makes sense. We're going to, you know, support where we live. We're going to make sure that the schools are good. We're going to make sure our community is eating healthy and we're going to make sure that we're investing in our future. And that's exactly what Orinda does because what does the community have? They have the resources, they have the funds, they have the time. However, when you move over to communities who have been historically put in a position that takes away their resources, time and money, those same investments aren't being made. And that's when I think that's when I see that exploitation kind of stepping in with, 
we're like so anti fast food right now. <laughs> but it's like that situation where it's like the money isn't staying in the community. We either I'm saying we, <laughs> we either go outside to some other supermarket that we have to for actual uh, supermarket that sells somewhat healthy food. You have to drive outside of the community or stay in the community and spend money on fast food. And that money ends up leaving. Well, gosh, I mean, it, it really seems like we have a lot to talk about um, with these topics. Uh, hopefully in the future, we, we get more podcast opportunities, but I'm afraid we're going to have to move on now. So Zion, I believe it is your time to speak your truth. Of course. So, um, as you know, my book is Paranomics, the National Plan to Empower Black America by Dr. Claude Anderson. And so in this part of the book, he's specifically talking about um, some keys to, you know, empowerment. And so what this section is called is the empowerment mode. And so he says he uses this space to specifically outline empowerment and then further outline empowerment culture. So he says, empowerment is too frequently used interchangeably with motivation, but the two words are very different. Motivating Blacks or any other group is little more than getting them interested, creating excitement and making them feel good. For instance, Blacks as a group can be motivated to travel and see the world, but if they lack the money, time, and other resources, they are little more than motivated Blacks who cannot leave home. Empowerment does not simply stimulate interest in travel. It also inspires confidence and most importantly, it provides tools and other needed resources necessary to accomplish the goals. And so specifically in this part, you know, as he, you may notice, he's saying and mentioning the difference between, you know, simple motivation and empowerment and how, you know, that terminology is not only useful, but important in making the distinction on the actions that we're going to take as we move forward and saying that not only do we need, he says specifically here, confidence, but the tools and resources to move forward. And then in the next section, he talks about an empowerment culture and specifically how that, you know, kind of culture of empowering you know, the groups or groups empowering themselves plays into the society that we have. And he speaks on different ethnic groups, you know, displaying that empowerment culture, specifically uh, examples he, specific examples he uses are, you know, basically white culture, white dominant society, um, portraying that kind of, culture where it promotes its own values you know the american dream we value hard work um family and things like that and that's used as kind of a foundation for our society and how that is you know one of the staples of how i'm saying we as americans specifically you know build up our entire society And so, however, what he outlines here is how Black people are specifically um, de-empowered by that white empowerment culture. And so that he's saying the white culture, 
portrays a image, a negative image of black people within our society. And that's where we see, you know, first off, implicit bias, outright blatant racism being, you know, displayed in our own society. And I think that was an interesting distinction. I've never really, first off, read it, seen it, or even talked about it in that kind of way of how, uh, you know, empowerment and specifically empowering people to specifically black people to, you know, build, um, you know, a culture on their own that kind of like invest in itself. And so that was why I picked this passage. And it also talked about how the white dominant society played a role into, you know, that culture that's being made kind of for black people, it seems. So basically like what I understand from your passage is that white people kind of like I guess in like the 17 1600s 1800s or whatever they kind of made it seem like especially with like slavery or just like trying to take these Africans from like their land I guess and they kind of made it seem like black people were always inferior or that they are the enemy or that they black people equals like negative kind of just like um kind of planned out like white people's future or like built white privilege or like kind of made it so that people thought oh whites are better and then for a long time that kind of just like built up white privilege the more people color that there are oh no black people are bad so that means definitely like these brown people are totally probably going to be bad i'm just what i know and then people just doing that kind of just built the white privilege and then i guess also maybe like young people maybe who are grew up knowing white privilege it kind of might have made themselves i guess like doubt themselves because i know even like not me at a young age or I guess kind of me at a young age kind of used to see like white people and think oh like they have such pretty hair it's straight Mm. it's easy to maintain right my hair was like that you know Mm -hmm. and that's not like I guess you could say that's not white privilege but it's I guess thinking of white people as like superior or oh the white girl's better oh the white girl has soft snow skin the white mm-hmm. has this and this and this. I wish I had that. So it's kind of just like the mentality. No, yeah, I think that definitely is white privilege because that also that comes from. It's not intentional white privilege because it's just like kind of what your mind does. But you know? it comes. But it comes from when we're younger and now, like seeing on the media, whatever. Like exactly. we're not going to portray a bunch of like, like when I was younger all the people that I thought were really cool were definitely all white, like whether it was famous people, whatever, just cause that's what I grew up with. And I'm sure a lot of the black girls that grew up with me probably, I don't want to speak for them, but I'm sure there weren't that many black role models that were not like found for them. Like, right. Like if they were to have someone like that, 
that was famous or something I maybe like their mom had to like go out and buy like like books or whatever like or show them specific tv shows but something like that yeah to like specifically counter exactly what society I think yeah definitely because and this is you know another part of what my book says it says um the culture it's a part of that same kind of section about um empowerment culture the culture of america's dominant society is eurocentric though its culture through its culture it promotes its own values as the baseline against which every other group is compared and so i think this is like you know the situation you're bringing up is like a perfect example of that it's like the not only you know obviously the beauty standards that are set within the media and within our society are very eurocentric you know you were talking about skin skin tone hair hair texture and things like that they're very much tied to european features and that's kind of like the standard of beauty and then also you know coming up for me is just like behavioral patterns when you know black people are seen being in any way like loud or expressing themselves in any kind of you know passionate way it's all of a sudden like illegal (laughs) and so it's like that kind of stigma that's been put on black people by the dominant society by you know dominant culture of eurocentrism centricism it's like how you know it's not you know her fault it's not their fault it's not my fault but you know it does exist and i think it's like you know noticing that like society it's a reality within our society and it's like you know, taking steps, kind of like how you mentioned, Lucy, of, you know, we shouldn't have to do it, but that's what we're doing, going out of the way to introduce more representation, not only for like role models, but I mean, kind of like what we were talking about earlier is like investing in the Black community. There should be books with Black leads. There should be books by Black authors. There should be lead roles with black actors and actresses because that's not just like you know a figure that we're putting up there but that's you know us investing in the black community i completely agree i was gonna say like before you even said that that i feel like having like white book like white characters even in cartoon cartoon books usually the default character is a white a white blonde girl or a white right boy and so and then the side character then that's when they like okay now we can have a black person yeah but even even that like sometimes i feel like it took um took a while for to even have like a black side character exactly probably be like a brunette white girl as is her side character but i feel like for me as like just growing up i kind of like what lucy said looking up to white like i would always look up to white people even though i'm not even white and so I'd be like, oh, this is such a pretty celebrity. Or like you see models walking down the runway, skinny white blonde girl, skinny white brown haired girl, you know, and then, oh, my God, a black model walking down the runway or like something like that. So I feel like for me growing up, I personally had to like go out of my way to go find a black person that I wanted to like, I guess, idolize because when you're young you want to like you idolize people you look up to people you are like oh I kind of want to be like them but that's just like a a young mindset you know Mm -hmm. and so 
I feel like for me, I had to like go out of my way to go find these people, like small things, YouTubers, a black YouTube couple. <laughs> oh <laughs> Lord. <laughs> like, I, I mean, like, that's just like my, my experience, but exactly. like it, it took me a while to actually like find myself and like to like embrace my like that black, like I've always like embraced my black side. I've always been around like my black side of my family, but it's like, it took me a while to like get singles for the first time because right. oh I'm gonna look so bad in them or oh <laughs> da, 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 da. I was to be honest I was really scared of going to school with them you mm. know I had a, a really big fear that people were gonna make fun of me at school for having singles or for saying that my forehead looked big or for just me being different for something that. I like wanted to try out and like, I really wanted to, I guess like life story. I really wanted to try, like it took me, I didn't try braids till sophomore year, junior year, my first time. And actually it was junior year. I went junior year summer. I went to Africa and it gave me, I took a risk and I got braids. And I loved them, but I was too scared to go to school with them. And I was like, if I ever get them again, I only want to get them on a break, like a winter right. break so that I can have them and no one will see me. But it's mm-hmm. kind of like the fact that I even thought that kind of makes me sad because it's like, I always need to embrace my beauty and what I want to try. And like, this is like, that's, a, that's a specifically like black beauty because it's like, white people can't really do that. And I'm happy because it's like, all right, just tell me I look beautiful and wish you had it, but you can't. you know yeah um I think what you were saying about like you wearing your braids for the first time or like being nervous to like go to school with them like that's like very upsetting to hear I guess because like doing that to your hair or whatever like that's a part of like your black culture and like so that's like a that's like a part of you so you just being yourself and like embracing your blackness like to be afraid to go to school, whether it's to be like you'd get made fun of or you're just nervous, whatever. It's just kind of like a bummer that like that would even happen. And like, that's, I guess, why representation is just so important because you're going to school. I'm guessing was this like middle school and like, was it like an all white school or what? No, that was actually um, high school. I got them. Mm -hmm. I had actually been thinking about like my whole family had been telling me like, Oh, me, you should, or like my cousins were like, Oh yeah, you should get braids. You should get braids. You should get braids. And that was like just my fear, but they had for like two years, they had been telling me that. So I guess like eighth grade, freshman year, sophomore year, they're like, I mean, you should do it. And right. then when I went to Africa, usually out here, like in America, obviously everything's going to be freaking overpriced. And so people will charge like $200 to get your hair <laughs> or like $100 plus you have to pay for the hair. But when I went to Africa, Hair was included, and it was $30 to get my hair braided. So I, I know, right? Zion would know. So then it was just like, you know what? They're like, just do it, do it, do it. I'm like, I'm in Africa. Like, not everyone can say, I went to Africa, you know? So and got like, my hair braided. <laughs> for $30. And my number one goal, like, when we went on the trip, my number one goal was to, we had to go out there with a what is it called? It was like, it was like a passion project and I couldn't figure mine out, but mine was just to be step out of my comfort zone and try new things. And then I 
obviously tried the biggest new thing that I could have tried. And I even got blonde braids Hmm. and I just loved it. And from here on out, I feel like that really changed me because now I kind of feel like I changed my hair up a little bit or I get braids more often, you know? Mm -hmm. And I felt like like that for me also like trying like a bonnet. I didn't really know what it was. And like, I kind of, my hair used to get like tangled or dry. And then they're like, oh, you should wear a bonnet. And then I'd Snapchat people. Or like, I think the first time I wore my bonnet, I was like not sending face pictures because I didn't want people to see what I was wearing on my head. Right. When I do, a white boy's like, what's that stupid thing on your head? Take it off. And I'm mm. like, ew. Um, all right. <laughs> ew. So, it's just kind of like things that are just like, yeah. Right. It's like those little things, especially when it ties into a bigger thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think. And that's like, I'm like, that also, he talks about that in my book. So (laughs) basically, like he speaks on, you know, he talks about the empowerment culture, Dr. Anderson, and then he speaks like, you know, solutions. What can black people do? And he basically, I'll paraphrase, he says black people um, you know, should be proud of their numerous achievements, their culture, their talents, and use that, you know, confidence to kind of build their own empowerment culture, our own empowerment culture around those, you know, different ideas. And he names there specifically in here, um, you know, natural talent for generating music, dance, and language. Um, extraordinary emotional and physical strength that took them through 300 years of slavery and Jim Crow, um, hard work, work ethic, strong communal society, and, you know, several other things he names. But he specifically says, you know, using that as kind of like a baseline, you know, embracing our culture, embracing, you know, the different, you know, things that we've been through, the different things that make black people you know a people and then you know taking that taking the resources we have to you know back i'm like back it up and kind of like support that and use that to kind of build our own culture and build that empowerment culture specifically to you know support ourselves yeah okay wait wait. and so i think just you know, taking steps to move forward and, um, you know, prepare and build for the future and building that, you know, as he says here, that empowerment culture, where not only is it involving kind of that confidence and pride, but also, you know, the resources and tools that, you know, we are able to have and using those together to build that um, empowerment culture for Black culture. So, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I feel like it kind of relates to my um, passage in my book, The New Jim Crow. And I feel like Black people shouldn't just be the only ones trying to, I guess, like bring more attention to their accomplishments or like kind of make it so that it's just like more, I guess, like more attention on Black people. And that it like, I guess, like, I don't know, but My passage is, of course, if meaningful progress is to be made, whites must give up their racial bribes, too, and be willing to sacrifice their racial privilege. Some might argue that in this game of chicken, whites should make the first move. 
whites should demonstrate that their silence in the drug war cannot be bought by tactic assurances assurances that their sons and daughters will not be rounded up in mass and lock away. Whites should prove their commitment to dismantling not only mass incarceration, but all the structures of racial inequality that guarantee for whites the resilience of white privilege. And that was on page 244. And obviously my book is about mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness. And um, I just think kind of like my opinion on this passage is that not a lot of change is going to be made if only people of color are fighting their fight. So if black people are trying to fight for their justice, their racial justice, it's kind of like obviously what black people have been fighting for years and years and years, like our, all of our ancestors have been fighting. But the only way to make change is if people on their stuff, on, I guess the opposing side start to kind of influence their, I don't even know what to call them, but like influence their counterparts in making a change because you kind of just like, I don't even know like how to explain, but like you kind of just, you're not going to change someone who has had the same thought for 60 years unless you have things kind of like convincing them of change, if you understand what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like using that connection that is already there between white people to you know, appeal to white people. <laughs> is yeah. Am I hearing you correctly? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess using white people to appeal to other white people is just the only way that you're going to make change, which is sad that that's kind of how the world works, but it is true. And right. if a white person has to die for like not going to say like a white person has to die in order for like to make change or like to, I guess, point over the, or like kind of put a spotlight over the hundreds of black people who have died to police brutality or just to simply police brutality. Right. That's it's, it's kind of like using, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's like making brain fart i've got something then um that's kind of like the that just is like reminds me of like that's the link i sent you guys and it's like there's an article about football player and i guess a black football player and a white football player suffered from like the same brain injury but like and this was like recently and um the white football players getting more treatment and it's because of some like old, like outdated rule or something, but it only got attention because the white football player also was like, no, 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 this is like totally messed up and not okay. But it probably wouldn't have gotten as much news coverage as it did. Had he not like also spoken up and like, just like the black guy had like said, this is not fair, but the white guy like stood with him probably getting, much more attention, much more news coverage, all that. I think that's like, yeah, that's like completely unfair to me. And like, it's kind of sad. Obviously, I mean, like the world isn't fair and it's not going to get fair anytime soon because that's just like how it is. And we kind of just like have to suck it up. But it's like, 
there are so many different things that are like that. And a lot of people just like, don't put focus over it or just like, don't, Oh, it's not really prevalent right now. We're just gonna, we'll like leave it till it comes up later, you know? Or like, I think there was something about like the Colin Kaepernick kneeling or whatever. And then how he basically just got kicked off of his own like football team and like no football team wanted him. And yet at one point in time, he was like the best quarterback in the NFL. Right. But I think somebody took like some white person kneeled or something or some white person like stood or I forget what it was, but then they were like, Oh, so powerful. He kneeled or he stood. And then people were like, Oh, Colin Kaepernick. Like he did the same thing. Yeah. Like, and then you're praising this guy and yet you kicked him off the football team. Yeah. And he got like super hated on for just, exactly. yeah. Like he didn't like, to me, it's just like, he doesn't have a job. Yeah. Like he does. I was like, yeah. And then it's just like, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. And like, this isn't really like white people fighting for, um, like other, or for like people of color, but like even Mr. Polling, Mr. Polling, just sharing that his house is deed kind of, it's just kind of like crazy to me. And like, that's how it was not even that long ago. The fact that Mr. Polling's house deed said, oh, no black people can live here. Right. It's just like, what, that man's probably 80 now? And that's like, I don't know. Yeah. Just something to add here. Amia, you were saying earlier uh, how you're just more, or at least when you were younger, you were naturally drawn to, I suppose, white beauty, right? And, you know, not necessarily attracted to or like it more, but it just seemed more normal. Um, right. So that it's kind of interesting because in, in my book, you know, the mediocre book, it, uh, it mentions that it mentions how we kind of all of us as, as minorities and just non-white or even white play a role in kind of supporting indirectly this image of white maleness. So I was just going to read a quick passage here uh, directly from the book. Starts, when we consider the privilege hierarchies of race, gender, and class, it's clear that some of us have played a larger role than others in perpetuating this harmful image of white maleness. But I also think that all of us, regardless of our demographic, have played a part in upholding white male supremacy. Mm. We're told to aspire to the largest bite of our piece of pie, no matter how mm. meager our piece may be. Sorry, I, I misread the last part there. But yeah, that is the quote. I'll let it sink in. I think, Zion, you, you're, you want to say something. <laughs> no, yeah, that's definitely... Wow, that's... Because I think... For me, over these past like couple of weeks, as as we've been talking about that, and specifically after we read the Audrey Lord essay about, you know, the master's tools can't dismantle the master's house. It's that you know system of you know oppression that we are in within this society and how they all are a part of perpetuating the you know dominant culture of like being a white male in our society and how it's interesting how we talk 
or I think, you know, there are examples of specifically like white women kind of playing into that role of, you know, I'm a woman, I'm part of a, um, you know, oppressed or underrepresented group in our society. However, you know, I'm white. I'm going to use my whiteness as a tool to, you know, as I think, as I heard you say, Cheyenne, from the book, get the largest piece of the pie that I can, piece of my pie that I can. I'm going to use that as a tool to get, you know, get mine. Or for, you know, Black men using, you know, the patriarchy as a way to gain access to whatever, you know, extra freedom rights or resources, you know, we can get access to. And it's like acknowledging that first they kind of exist in a larger scheme, kind of like in a larger system together. And they work together to promote specifically white dominant, white male dominant society. And then, you know, what are ways that we can kind of work against that in every single way, whether you are, or specifically for me as a black male, what are ways that I can, you know, work as a black person for black justice and then also as a male you know against the patriarchy of you know male dominant society right exactly i mean just like being in that or being in this society rather you know it's almost inevitable that you just kind of fall to indirectly supporting and and playing (laughs) right (laughs) like maintaining their status and on the flip side you know the older you get, you know, the more you know, ideally. And then with that, you you kind of see like, oh, you know, th- they're my people, right? I, I I have my own people. I have my own. Right. Why, why am mm. I why am I supporting this exactly? Right. So and it's not like just supporting another culture. It's supporting a culture, or rather uh, a race, color, whatever you want to call it, that oppresses most majority in this country. Now, I don't like mm. to put that general blanket label like all whites do this. That's just BS. But at least from Aluo's perspective, white male in power are, are, are the main ones in control of, of the system. So mm. it's interesting to see how, how we kind of play that role. Right. And also shine for the future. Um, like don't like blacks is kind of just like a, it's kind of just like a negative term or like, I guess it sounds negative and you people like, I guess you just say like African-Americans or like, I guess black people, not like, like blacks. Cause it's just like you, you know what I mean? Right. I, 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 in my, in my mind, I just kind of saw it as like whites, blacks, browns. They're just colors. Um, right. Yeah, but then it's also just like it's not like just a color. It's kind of just like someone's like, I guess, identity and like race. You don't really it's like. Interesting. This is interesting. I, I think this is what polling wanted. I think this is the tension polling was. <laughs> I slightly disagree. I mean, I'm not. I'm not like being a dick or, or being a bad yeah person. but like I, I obviously I'd like to know more I'd like to learn more about your perspective and maybe it'll change mine 
hopefully it does. But in my view, I've always seen it as, as those words specifically meaning the color of your skin. Now, the way I used it, yeah, I used it in the sense that they're African-American. That would have been yeah. the correct term. I agree to that. So I, I have no problem refraining from, from saying blacks. Um, yeah, no, it's not really like, I'm not trying to just like bash on you for saying, like for saying it, but no. it's kind of just like, you know how when people are like, um, oh, I don't see color or, oh, it's just like, I'm just going to associate people with just a certain color. It's kind of just like people would say, oh, like blacks or like kind of just like in a negative way. Yeah, and I guess it was like that negative connotation with the word. It. Right. It's like kind of just like black people, you know, and it's like people aren't just like associated with like a certain color. Like you can't just say, oh, they're purchased purple. Like, oops, purples, what yellows like. Yeah. You know? No, it's I actually I kind of laugh at that where it's like you, you categorize people by color. Right. I, I, I think the more correct version is is culture and origin and you know, where you were born, right? Right. Yeah. And I guess not saying like Argentinians or like uh, Persians or like, you're not going to say every single person that you know by their, like where they were born or like what their specific, like, I guess, ethnicity is. But like when you're, when you don't know, or like, I guess you wouldn't just say like just blacks. It's kind of just like, I feel like there's like lack of empathy behind it or like mm-hmm. lack of just like realizing that they're a person. It's kind of just like, I guess, a color. And so black people or like African-Americans, it's just kind of like more. Right. The way I've kind of like seen it is, okay, so like, you know, you have ethnicity that is kind of like the cultural, you know, connections that are within a group. And so ethnicity is tied to, so like an ethnic group is like um, Latino, Latina people. And so that's a kind of common, you know, cultural group. They share similar cultural um, practices in that way and similar language patterns. And then you have nationality. And so obviously nationality is nation. So American, Mexican, um english i think that's great brit yeah english british (laughs) i don't know that no (laughs) and then yeah (laughs) and then you have like so then you have the racial different racial groupings and so that one's where it's kind of like different in a way that it's specifically tied to kind of like how we were talking about earlier within like, Oh, when uh, Darwin or whoever decided to split up the earth into the white man, uh, the black man, and then the in between (laughs) where they called them, you know, um, mongoloids. That was the term he used for people from Asia. And so it's like, but when, you know, black, I'm, my skin is not black as you know, there's nothing wrong, but when, you know, we say black, it's with the capital B inferring that it is that, you know, race of people. It's not describing my skin color, particularly it's describing kind of like that racial grouping in a sense where it's, um, you know, a proper noun. 
means of like that adjective kind of thing. And that's the way I've kind of um, internalized that definition of it. So the way you're describing it, what was different in the way I used it? I believe it was just like, right, right, right. And so the way I've heard it, the way um, historically, specifically blacks, because it's like black people and then blacks, just like, it's kind of like the difference between colored people and coloreds where the context is different. And it's like that specific, that historical context in which it's been used creates that like negative connotation with it where it's like the way it has been used affects the perception of it. And it's like, honest, it's, just the word however there is a historical context behind it so it's like blacks was used like okay you know arrest the blacks we need to get the blacks out of our community oh those are the blacks and it's so more negatively connotated than the other words used yeah it's also like people of color or colored people it's kind of just like your preferred like what you say could it's kind of like basically it's not what you say, how you say it, you know, and like blacks, you could easily just switch it up to black people instead of colored people or oh, yeah. people of color. Right, right. I feel uh, like, yeah. oh yeah, I feel like it's kind of similar to saying like Jews versus like Jewish people or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. Where it's kind of like, <laughs> it's like, like, and obviously like I'm white. I have no like, opi- like opinion, whatever on this, or like I have no background on this, but I just, it seems like, what I'm hearing is it's like the informalness takes away from like the fact that you're black, like that's a part of your identity. So just mm. like, yeah, that's what it's. And I think context is really key here. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to give any examples, but like, yeah, blacks could be used in a negative con- uh, connotation or in a negative context rather like Zion was mentioning. But I mean, Again, for me, uh, I, I've always just kind of seen it as right, right. You know, the way to describe that group. But black yeah. people, yeah, that, that's probably a, a more proper way of saying it. African-American and, of course, African, if they're just, you know, straight off the boat. It's often also, it's kind of just like, this is a whole different thing. But like black people, like almost every single black people, like person is not even like black. They're brown. And yeah. so you're like, even though that they're br- like their group they're like the grouping is like black people you're not going to go even though they're brown you're not going to be like oh the browns you know instead of calling them blacks because they're not black i mean they're not their skin color is not black i mean there are some people who are almost kind of black but that's just like their darker skin tone or like i guess could be like area of living maybe like africans but like if like Zion, he said he's brown. You're not going to go around calling him, oh, the Browns, you know, because it's just like, I mean, I'm brown too, and I really don't. I know, that. but it's just like, if you're associating people by color, then I guess you might as well just, you're not going to go around calling people, oh, the like, oh, the Browns, the whites, oh, they're the yellows, the. Or it's like there wouldn't, yeah, it's interesting. There like wouldn't really be whites. It was just like we're all on a spectrum of brown. <laughs> Stands in the Honestly, end. Just this whole system of colors is pretty 
backwards and outdated. It just yeah. doesn't fly. That's why I said it's a whole different topic, but it's just like. And that's why know. it's a capital B. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely like constantly like changing, I feel like, because my grandma, um, well, this, I feel like it would be the opposite that like I would be like correcting her. But I said something and I was referring to black people and I said black people. And she was like, oh, Lucy. And I was like, what? And she w- and she wanted me to say African-Americans instead because mm. she thought that mm. she thought that me saying black people was like offensive. But yeah, it's definitely just interesting to see like how it's changing. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, it's like bottom line is just if you're not black, just like keep up. Like that's kind of what I'm. <laughs> like that's just how i kind of see it for me no i think because like particularly the way or wait wait can i'm I learning wait, wait let me yeah see. or not not black if you're not a person of color i didn't mean to like just say not black i i mean like me and like other white people like we gotta keep up i see i see Sorry, i had to correct myself no yeah, yeah. <laughs> all good i think it's like for me like the way i the way I've been, you know, learning and then also unlearning is, you know, much of the anti-blackness that I see, that I say, and that I, you know, think it's like, I'm not going to shy away from me being black. I'm no, I'm black. I will say that I'm also African-American, but, you know, as I said, you know, when making the distinctions of ethnicity and race, I am racially, I'm black. My ethnicity um, is African-American, specifically, uh, you know, foundational Black American. And so because Black people aren't always African-American, um, <laughs> that's where that kind of distinction comes in handy when saying, you know, if I call someone who is, you know, Italian and they're Black African-American, it's like, okay, um, not really, but <laughs> the other way around too, right? Right, right, exactly. From uh, Africa, but not necessarily black, like exactly from, uh, South South Africa, right? And that's where it's like ethnicity and race and nationality. It's like making sure those distinctions are made, and then also, you know, knowing where they come from and not shying away from the term specifically black capital b but um we honestly could talk about like labels that we want to be called or like that we feel are incorrect or incorrect or incorrect and correct but it's honestly getting late and (laughs) i think we should end the podcast here lucy has been recording this whole time (laughs) she's gonna have a lot of editing to do yes uh quite an impressive conversation i mean uh, i like the last part i think the most um yeah definitely that was real i was like legit you know like yeah we definitely got to keep it uh, you know no passages right just like, <laughs> no right <laughs> all our knowledge all like you know yeah i, I love that that that's what the podcast should have been about but i'm not the teacher sorry pulling i mean <laughs> i love the i love the passages i love my book but maybe maybe some this- you know, personal knowledge and connection is, is yeah. really <laughs> experiences and everything. I feel like once I feel like when we have moments like that, I guess 
there's more that like the listeners and definitely us for like can like take away. So it's not like we're just, yes, I love the conversation. <laughs> like, how could you not love our five hour conversations? But I think <laughs> no, it's also really important to like find something that like, okay, now I can do this or I can make this specific change. And that's definitely something right. that I was like when we started this project, that was just something I was hoping to get out of this. And we most definitely have. Expanding the horizons. Yes. Oh, and just in case. Today. Huh? I was just saying we had a great podcast today. Oh, we really did. We really did. <laughs> well, um, as your host, I believe it is time Wait, did everyone go? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you went, right? Okay, yes. Okay, so then, yes. As your host, Cheyenne Afshar, this has been another wonderful, amazing podcast brought to you by BAM. Where we BAM! News. BAM! Yeah. Right now. I realize they can't really see me on Zoom. It's just me. <laughs> No, yeah, it's always awkward. I'm like, imagine if they could see us, just like Lucy, just like doing my yoga. <laughs> Tragic. <laughs> Tragic. That, that right. But then it'd just be YouTube, right? <laughs> All right. Thank you, listeners. All right. Thank, Thank you, guys. You. See you on the flip side in the this next episode. Is-